Hello and welcome to the Dice of Screaming Podcast. I'm Randy. I am Mike. Yeah, once again, thank you for joining us on yet another excursion into the weird and crazy. Well, we have an abundance of that, but you can expect no less from the little gaming podcast that chews more scenery than a starving belay. Oh. <laughs> I got you with that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Didn't see that coming. No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say more, choose more scenery than Jeremy Irons, but ooh. oh, uh, are we clapping back to the old D&D movie? Yes. You rogue. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I've been subjected to it. So shall you. <laughs> yeah. I've actually managed to avoid uh, going through that. Oh, yeah. On purpose, because like, bless all of my friends. They warned me. They said, no, dude, don't like if you don't have to, don't do it. Yeah, don't do it. They have the guns to your head, and you're like, uh, this is the only way to get them to disarm the bomb. Okay, maybe, but your eyes are going to bleed. So, <laughs> well, yeah. it's, uh, dude, it's, it's kind of like, you remember the end of Indiana Jones and the, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, just like try not to look. Just don't, don't look directly at it. Don't, don't, no, no. It, it doesn't end well. So I, I saw the face meltiness on those who opened their eyes. So I've, yeah. I've avoided it carefully all these years. So I'm still a original, like, 90s D&D movie virgin. So, yeah, yeah, so it's a nice day here. We uh, got the windows open, so you're going to hear a lot of background noises. So, hey. Um, it's beautiful. Yeah, so. Spring has sprung. We're in happy mode. i, I got to say, I love this. Yeah, we, we had a good um, run on our last episode, so we appreciate everybody. Uh, giving us some chime-ins and also some clapbacks from the Dark Conspiracy RPG fans group. Oh, yeah. Hey. Marcus Bone uh, put us on there and, of course, uh, mentioned to Lee Williams. He said that, uh, of course, mentioned him in uh, these guys. We need help with anything. So we are going to tap that uh, because we're going to be coming up here fairly soon. It'll probably be more towards the end of summer. So a couple months off, but that gives us time to do some uh, legwork. We're going to be doing a Appendix N movie night of horror. Yeah, uh, we have a number of movie night concepts, but we'd like to spread them out evenly. Uh, right now, we're right smack dab in the middle. In fact, uh, I, I think I'll do the divination right now. Yeah, let's do it. Let's, uh, let's it's time it. to conjure up uh, some dreary observe Observe the splatter of blood. Oh. Um, <laughs> okay, the dreary you know, go ahead and. Oh, ah, oh. Oh, now we observe this. The droplets of blood will tell us all we need to know about the future. Yeah, I bleed for you. I bleed for you. Oh, yes. He does. Uh, <laughs> In our next episode, we will be looking at Expedition to the Barrier Peaks, the D&D module that honestly is the source of much controversy, you know, some old school fist fights, uh, and some wonderful and terrible memories at the same time, fusing science fiction. And that is kind of part of this month's theme. Uh, we're talking about moments where uh, the original RPG outlets had their fusions of fantasy and the fantastic with science fiction. So uh, look forward to Expedition to the Barrier Peaks next week. Yeah, and if you couldn't tell from the header on this one, we're going to be talking about Metamorphosis Alpha. And yeah, we've covered Gamma World pretty well, and Metamorphosis, yeah, Metamorphosis Alpha and Gamma World are very, very close. So we don't have to go too deep in that, but we're going to 
uncover a little bit of some of the seeds that may have led to Metamorphosis Alpha and some interesting reading. I had some fun doing this one. It was a fun little uh, trip for me. But we're going to be talking about Metamorphosis Alpha and the Starship Warden, its various incarnations, and its effect on gaming, as well as the Gamma World concept itself. So uh, that's what we're going to be closing in on. And uh, we're just going to end this out as the as our last episode... Oh, well, in Tropes and Stereotypes and Old School Misconceptions back in 246. Yeah, 246, our past episode, we talked about a lot of the misconceptions and how uh, they can be used as both gatekeeping and how people can poo-poo old ideas. But Yeah, we don't really fall on the side of anybody in that one because, you know, honestly, you find both camps. There are people who like to pigeonhole and limit the idea of old school gaming. You'll find old gamers who have a really skewed perception of like, this is all that gaming was in that day. And then you have, you know, like we little pups uh, nipping at the heels of us old dogs going, eh, I heard that back in the day, this is all it was. And they're both wrong. Yeah, they're both like literally, <laughs> like I got, <laughs> I have an endless, I got zip. Oh, zip it. You got zip, zip it. You got zip. You be quiet. You be quiet. I can keep doling it out all day. Because uh, do this yeah. all day. Basically, I saw a lot of erroneous concepts in every single direction I turned. And I, I know it's a cop-out, uh, but attempting to narrowly define early gaming as like, it, it, it was this, it was that, you get into that wonderful old Zen riddle thing where it's the three blind guys in the elephant where, you know, one guy's up against the side of it, feeling the, the side of the elephant. An elephant is a great deal like a wall. And the other one's, you know, like got the tail and it's like, an elephant is a great deal like a rope. Another one's grabbing the leg. An elephant is a great deal like a tree. None of them see the big, the big picture. Yeah. And it's all of those things at the same time and so much more. So giving we were there gaining its credit and we're not trying to politicize it or make it anything other than what it was. Yeah, there were some good moments and there were some bad moments. However, there's always something worth salvaging from the past. And if some of the things like resource management, encumbrance and alignment seem quaint and antiquated in these days, hey, know that that is not always the end all and be all of old school experiences. You can do a lot of things in old school styles without adopting some of the cumbersome things that aren't so much fun. Yeah. Like mapping. And we'll talk about that in a <laughs> later on in the episode. I'm going to I'm going to go in rant mode on that one. So, uh, from both and let Mike uh, explain his conundrums. Yeah, we we as promised, uh, we're going to continually uh, offer small updates at the beginning of each episode on the ongoing old school essentials campaign uh, done in that primitive, wonderful, basic D&D style. Uh, you know, structurally minimalist. Minimalist. Yeah, I would not go primitive. I would say minimalist. Yeah, it it was not the earliest iteration of Dungeons and Dragons, but uh, it was the type and style of play that was familiar to so many people around the age of 12 or 13, uh, circa the early 1980s. So, you know, it, it's definitely a 1981, 1982 flashback for us. Now, this last week, what Randy's talking about, what he has alluded to here, uh, was my struggle as the map monkey. I, I, got, I got too big for my britches, uh, and going into this uh, in search of the unknown, 
I wanted to take the pressure off of the others. So I, I did the noble thing and volunteered to be the map maker. However, it has been a long time since I have played that particular module, and I forgot how mind-shatteringly complex the map for that one is. I mean, it is just dense. Uh, this is not like a little handful of caves or like, oh, 20 feet down the hallway, there's just one room. No, it is, you know, endless alcoves and double backs and mazes and <laughs> angles and weird stuff and... You know, they did in the OSE rules. They Dungeon said, by MC Escher. Yeah. <laughs> they did They did say in the OSE rules, which I liked, is they said particularly complex mapping areas is all right for the Dungeon Master to intervene and go ahead and ascribe on the player's map. You should want to do it too often because map makers won't get any better. But I'll have a little snippet to add at the very end of the episode about that. And that's from our little uh, shout back to some folks in the community. But anyway, let's uh, let's dive right into it. Well, hey, you know, I would like to oh. mention one other thing. Uh, sure. I've also been DMing as well. I'm, I'm back in the, the saddle as a DM as of uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it's fantastic uh, doing a 1E retro campaign. Uh, except while it is Greyhawk based, uh, the title of the campaign is The Archipelago of Doom. Love and, the pulp names. Yeah, I know. Exactly. I was working so hard to come up with a title for the campaign that evoked that uh, classic pulpy uh, Danger Island mm -hmm. uh, was, was also on the list. Skull but, Island. Uh, but the players began shipwrecked uh, with none of their equipment, which I know it's the original DM jerk move, but they performed marvelously. I am so proud of them. They they literally assessed like what wreckage from the ship can we salvage? How much canvas and lumber can we put together? Uh, barrels of you know uh, unspoiled food you know that survived, uh, and then what are the resources available to us on the island in terms of uh, fruit? You know like coconuts, uh, things like Boom, that. Yeah. Fresh crab. Uh, you know fishing and. They had to salvage from the wreckage of the ship uh, by, you know, risking barracuda-infested waters after building a crude raft to get out to the the ship that is impaled on a on a large rock in the middle of the bay, and from that they salvaged most of the valuable gear that, you know, I had planted there uh -huh. uh, intentionally, you know, so that yeah, okay, you began with nothing. But here's a place where you can go and retrieve a great many things that will form the basis for your ability to build a more sturdy and relevant boat. Uh, and then island hop. Uh, and they have made their hop to the first island and contacted a you know tribe of peoples that have all settled there across centuries because of past shipwrecks and adventurers attempting to uh, find a lost artifact on these islands and most people don't know about it but they have their first glimmering that there is something of incredible value uh, that their mentors and leaders were supposed to acquire uh -huh. and that the task falls to them so they they've also encountered their first hints and riddles about uh 
some of the other dangers on the aisles and some of the other contactable persons upon the aisles, uh, you know, where to find other mages and druids and clerics. Uh, and everything is done in Greyhawk style with the familiar Greyhawk gods. So they are not completely separated from all civilization. It's just that this is a civilization that has sprung up out of necessity hundreds upon hundreds, if not thousands of miles, uh, you know, a thousand miles from the Lendor Isles, you know, the, mm. out in the middle of the ocean. If you can think of the vast distance between uh, the Hawaiian Isles and, you know, the continents in either direction, that's the kind of isolation we're talking about. So their ultimate goal, of course, would be to return to their homelands. But to do that, uh, they will have to gain many levels and achieve great prosperity and find a way to either use uh, spell power or a much better quality craft uh, to return home. So hopefully after they've, you know, acquired the, the artifact or nullified it. All right. Yeah. That's, that's the synopsis and they, they did great. Uh, and this like past Saturday, that fight with the harpies, I, I, Level one party up against four harpies, and they oh. did well. Oh, good. Only one near death. You know, that's that's a tough one. That can be a charm half the party and kill the rest. Yeah, yeah they took precautions. Uh, one of them had a you know brilliant moment of insight in terms of, we're going to have to use tallow wax and fill our ears and go in deaf. It's going to be awkward, but it beats being, you know, charmed from a distance. Put the old kibosh on the spellcast. Yeah, it did. They did not use spells against them, uh, but they fought it out tooth and nail and they won. And I'm, yeah, super proud. But yeah, that was my campaign. And we'll have more reports on uh, the old school campaign as well to come. All right. Well, let's get into the topic at hand, which is Metamorphosis Alpha. Yeah, meat and potatoes time. Yeah, we've spoken about it before in Gamma World and also uh, alluded to Expedition of Barrier Peaks and Pathfinder's uh, first edition Iron Gods Adventure Path uh, uses a lot of this as well. But yeah, one thing about Metamorphosis Alpha is um, it was the first science fiction role playing game, but it was not a hard science fiction role playing game. So yeah, a lot of put that on in there, and Jim Ward has been its author has been very uh, clear in saying it's not hard science. Because there's a lot of weird mutations and crazy stuff going on. It was meant to be kind of a contained environment. And so let's talk about the idea of Metamorphosis Alpha. It's on a generational ship. And a generational ship, spaceship, is a concept that was enshrined by several other science fiction authors. But it ostentatiously is that a ship of great proportions is sent out on a very long voyage. And its crew is expected that they will... uh, live and die and uh, bring forth new generations that will never know the outside of the spaceship. Yeah, uh, this was not an uncommon uh, presence in both hard and soft science fiction of yesteryear. The understanding, uh, like once you reached the 1940s and 1950s, uh, especially post 1950s, you saw science fiction authors with a at least solid understanding that the distances involved in interstellar travel could be so great that if it were to be undertaken, uh, any really intergalactic mission 
would have to be accomplished with the expectation that either people be uh, suspended in some way that prevented them from aging or be <laughs> uh, participating actively and passing the responsibilities down to the generations after them. This is how long they would be in transit. So Metamorphosis Alpha incorporates that early science fiction notion wonderfully yeah i, mean, I, I know it's, it's not a... hard sci-fi in the sense that like every last technical detail has not been explained hey you know what it doesn't have to be it's it's also an homage of the wonderful era of science fiction pulp which so many of us were inspired by yeah and so this was a unique way to solve the problem what if you couldn't get there for faster light it would take hundreds of years to get here so here's a generational starship that could support a sustainable population of exact parameters of course you couldn't go crazy with it but that a sustainable and uh capable crew that would train the younger generation to inherit their roles what would happen with this was going on however it took it on a complete flipped it on its uh side <laughs> as it passes through some unexplained cataclysm which is nominally a radioactive crowd uh cloud that killed off half of the crew and left the other half horribly mutated and the clone banks which sustained the stock that they could come pull on in case of such emergencies this was planned you emerge as one of three characters uh, a human a mutated human presumably one that uh lived <laughs> and or a mutated plant from the botany decks or a <laughs> mutated creature from the zoological decks yeah How's about that? <laughs> in addition, they expanded later in Dragon Magazine to have clones and robots as well as some android options. So nominally, that the pure strain humans were the royalty and that they were the leaders uh, descended obviously from officers or uh, technical members of the crew that had some idea of what was going on here versus other primitive humans who survived and now have resulted in either going to complete insane levels of cannibalism tribalism to survive the horrors that have been unleashed upon them by the mutated animals and plants that predate the other 19 to 20 levels it's all it's somewhat nebulous starship warden is supposedly has about uh, 16 18 levels and supposedly there's a hidden 19th and then there's the command deck which you can't get to but we'll <laughs> talk about that later but yeah everything went crazy and so now this ship is still headed on its course what the crew, its function has been completely sidelined by this cataclysmic event. And so you're stuck there trying to figure out items of technology that you don't have an idea of how they work. So you have to figure those out. And that, of course, translated directly into Gamma World. Yes, it did. The precursors are so obvious. The fingerprints uh, of what was going to become Gamma World we're all over the place in Metamorphosis Alpha. You can you can see the similarity in concepts and design. Uh, however, Gamma World, you know, gave you the whole of the Earth or like Earth-like yeah. place uh, post-apocalyptic. Uh, whereas Metamorphosis Alpha, you like, I think they acknowledged early on that like there's an inherent limit in that you're trapped on this ship and that's it. That's the extent of oh, your Oh yeah, field but it's play. huge. It's my yeah, twenty. It's a mega ship. So it's the ultimate mega dungeon, uh, but you know, <laughs> you're never going to get off the ship. The entire adventure is there. And there are just a list of things that you can and cannot do. 
and Gamma World took that away. So obviously they took great inspiration and then moved away from the limitations, which admittedly are not terrible. Okay. They're right. They're not game crippling, but the conceptual limitations go away. They're, they're places you could have or visit uh, journeys you can undertake in Gamma World that you could not do with this. But we all owe, like everybody in of a certain age in gaming remembers Gamma World, but not everybody remembers and appreciates Metamorphosis Alpha. So we're doing this one as like, it's time to pay our debt to the elders for the gift that they gave us. Yeah, and Metamorphosis Alpha is a very contained setting. And, you know, to put a fine point on it, this the starship is uh, over 100 miles long. But is it the only one like it? And the fact that Starship Warden is the kind of fourth character that ostentatiously you want to know, sorry, <laughs> what happened to the crew and how this came to be. And only the really the game master or referee at that time knew oh, how, what happened. Ostensibly? Yeah, ostensibly. Yes, yes ah, I've got you. Okay. Ostensibly, you would want to know that. But that's not, per, that's up for each individual game master referee to determine. And so that's kind of the old school ethic that people look at and they want to say like, hey, that's classic gaming right there off the off the uh, top. Yeah, sure. Every game master or referee running a, a Metamorphosis Alpha game had their own ideas of what happened. And, you know, it could possibly be that you could solve the mystery, the doom of the Starship Warden. Oh, yeah. I mean, and if the, the DM decided that, that was going to be the narrative arc of the campaign was we will slowly unravel from like starting off with so little information, we will unravel what has happened and how it went awry. Uh, you know, it, it's not within the realm of possibility that creative uh, game masters could expand upon the Metamorphosis Alpha concept and verse and then build into it like a campaign arc that you know, surely... There might be a way for us to repair this ship. Yeah, I don't it, know about that, but don't call me Shirley. Well, you know, after you get rid of all the crazies and mutants and fucking bizarre monsters and plants and have them, maybe then you can work on like engine repair and navigation control and communications. Yeah, you got a little job ahead of you before you can start thinking that far ahead. But yeah, you know, good good to have goals. Yeah, you know. As long as you got hope, you got something. <laughs> no, it was a marvelous game. Uh, the early Protean science fiction games all owe the nod to this one first. Uh, honestly, uh, Traveler, as much as I love it even more, uh, it did come a little later, and it was not heavily inspired by the uh, Metamorphosis Alpha's success. I mean, th these were parallel creations in a sense that in roughly the same time period, people were working on these concepts and Metamorphosis Alpha was quite different uh, and was also released sooner. Now, Traveler, obviously, we have done an episode that uh, people can scroll back to and that you know, we went into some of the origins and notions that went into the making of Traveler. Uh, and it was a much more complex and varied game. So the development took longer and it came out second. Uh, now, bringing us back, uh, Metamorphosis Alpha also had its inspirations. So there are things that 
they honestly, you know, they fed into the state of mind, the creative pool that the author and, you know, company really took into consideration as they crafted this. Yeah. And we'll talk about that after the break, but I want to just uh, touch base back on the idea of playing Metamorphosis Alpha. Some people have said, is it science fiction or is it science fantasy? And of course, I think that's answered by Expedition to the Barrier Peaks because it is not the Starship Warden. It is one similar to it in a way. But uh, the technology and the items in therein are really bizarre and strange. But <laughs> th- made purposely so, so players just won't obviously, oh, that's a ray gun, that's a, uh, a scanner or whatever technological doodad that we would probably be able to see uh, the antecedents from from our perspective, where yeah. they wanted to make it so completely weird that players, you would show them a picture and they wouldn't even know what it looks like. There is a thing where I remember in uh, Expedition Barrier Peaks where there's like a, a, it looks like a TV screen with a little handhold at the bottom with a button on the side. And you're like, oh, that must be some type of scanner. And if you point it at yourself, of course, you'll get zapped because it's actually a blaster, a microwave emitter. And it's like, holy shit. Yeah. Well, that that ended up bad. Bad, bad. Turn it around. Okay, okay. <laughs> I think it just melted my fillings. Oh, ah. no. Uh, it was intentional on the part of the expedition people, you know, to make these things obtuse and difficult. But in Metamorphosis Alpha, you see the exact same trend, yeah, which is the lending an air of mystery to scientific items that Yes, okay, we sitting here around the table being non-meta, we totally know what they are. But presenting players with the descriptions that are precisely as vague as they need to be uh, to maintain an air of uncertainty, that that is an art form in itself. And it, it it's tricky and it escapes some folks, but it's one of the nuances of Metamorphosis Alpha and Gamma World that make them so fun. And one of the things that I think Metamorphosis Alpha did more than Gamma World is the robots here are another element. The robots are still functioning more or less as intended. Some of their programming has went off track because there's no longer a crew to tend to or the incursion of mutated humans, crazy uh, pure strain humans who have went nuts <laughs> and uh, <laughs> mutant plants and, you know, drinking grain alcohol, sitting in there, worried about their purity of essence. <laughs> oh, boy. I, I got to get my obligatory General Ripper reference in. Right. And, you know, then some of the robots have become uh, confused because their programming no more applies to this. But pure strain humans, if uh, as you played them, were uh, the robots were not hostile to them because they were there to serve the crew. Now, in certain cases, the programming has been damaged or, you know, they they present potential adversaries. But more than in Gamma World, where robots are and machines are kind of sometimes uh, nebulous on what they are and their programming and functions still are going on because that's what they're programmed to do. They're going to continue to do it like an ecology bot. Here, some of the robots uh, will respond to the player character. So playing a a pure human character makes it uh, a, a lot more of a viable concept because, you know, uh, if you had the proper identification, you could take over a security robot and it would be your companion, you know, bodyguard and whatnot. Yes. yes. And also medical ro- uh, droids and robots were, uh, sorry, medical droid. The medic robot. droid. Yeah, the medic droid. Terrible. <laughs> oh, <I'm>, man. 
of all the emo bands of all time. Medic droid. Yeah, the medic droid. Which is the wow, the deepest of deep cuts. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> the medic droid. Yeah, uh, but a, a medical just, robot could be a much more useful thing. It would be useful in Gamma World, but to pure strain humans, it would just come up and start trying to and when it was first introduced, as I understand it the medical robot would come up and just with these weird tentacles and medical tentacles and uh, digits would start trying to analyze you and figure out what was wrong. Yeah. And if you did not know that that was like its intent and, and think purpose, about these needles and scalpels, it, it does a come at me bro moment with, and it's covered. In I sharp shoot it. I beat bits. it with my club, metal club. Get away from me. You murdering monster. Yeah. And no, actually, hilarity ensues was actually trying to heal you. Oh, well, maybe if it wasn't so aggressive. Well, you know, it's been, it wasn't programmed to comfort you while it does this. <laughs> so they have included it's a bedside not, manner subroutine. That would have been a little. It's not Big Hero 6. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. We're going to pick it back up at the end of the break uh, and we'll continue the examination of Metamorphosis Alpha. So stick around. All right, we're back. Thanks for sticking around from the break. Yeah, we were just talking about uh, the advantages of Metamorphosis Alpha, that robots were more of a aid to player characters than they were a hindrance. And if you were a mutated human who was just kind of funny colored or just had a few internal mutations, most of the robots would treat you as a human. True. Uh, this was not like a... Uh, they made no discernible... Uh, difference you know between a mutated human and a human although uh, being healed by <clears throat> i'm sorry for using medical droid <laughs> we just had a talk during the break about that <laughs> medical robots could be a hindrance if you're a mutated human because well you're not things just aren't quite the way they are in normal humans so it could do more harm than good so that was a thing but also the ID cards, the stage level ID cards that you see in Gamma World played a bigger role here as well, because now you've got an ally. You can clear out an area, and if you have enough security robots and uh, defense boards, you can hold an area off. Yeah, it, eventually this became kind of like the limited space version of campaign uh, world building, your uh, empire taking. It's like... You know, we have we have conquered the entirety of deck two uh, and we can now extend our reach and begin, you know, now that we have secured adequately uh, both food, yeah, we... liquid, you know, sustenance, shelter and safety uh, on this deck. And we have droids to protect uh, and suitable weaponry to enforce this area. We can expand outwards and begin to explore some of the other unknown location. It, that was the core concept there. Right. And they placed very smartly, I might add, they placed enough meat and potatoes in here that you could very easily build on this super dungeon ship in space yeah, without feeling as terribly diminished as, like I mentioned, the core difference between Gamma World, where there's no limits on the, we can scour the planet. Okay, yeah, but Metamorphosis Alpha, knowing its limitations, exercised excellent judgment in providing different ways for you to express expansive 
gaming concept. Yeah, there was a deck that was a completely aquatic, and it was, and yeah. there were other decks that were uh, made to hold terraforming artifacts that had desert, and uh, they malfunctioned. So instead of creating a terraforming a desert area into a lush, fertile valley, created a desert, and then there were decks where uh, it was supposed to transform swamp area into uh, farmable or arable land has now completely malfunctioned and it turned everything into this wild swamp full of crazy plants and, and jungle hell swamp. Yeah. It, yeah. Venusian hell swamps. Yeah. And there and was a malfunction that cracked open a piece of the ceiling into the next deck in the zoology department and the place is now full and overrun with like wild giant killer monsters. Yeah. Oh, you know, <laughs> there's a, the mutant coyotes have taken over the recreation deck and have instituted their own form of recreation. <laughs> Which mostly involves killing things, uh, eating the parts they like, and then throwing up on the leftovers <laughs> and laughing about it. Oh, yeah, well, it's pretty much just hyenas. And so it, it was this wild thing, and you could just do whatever you wanted with it. They uh, they gave you some guidelines, and there's some maps and stuff that you can find online. Starship Horton is fascinating, and I think that turning it into a complete ecological disaster... <laughs> Is oh. and you're in here. They're welcome to the third level of hell. <laughs> you're stuck here. You can't get out. <laughs> but you can improve your situation if you work hard enough. And it's kind of like your campaign in the Archipelago of Doom. It's you know it's a contained environment. You're stuck here, but you've got to work with what you can find and making you know. Okay, we've managed to make the uh, primitive remnants of the crew who have sequestered themselves into the forest area of deck seven, we've managed to foster finally good relations with them and convince their shaman that we are indeed inheritors of the old gods. Do you think that's a little unethical? Well, we'll sort that out later. <laughs> we've convinced them that we are heralds of the old gods. Okay. I, I'm not really cool with this ethically, but you know, we got to do what we got to do. Well, yeah, that, <laughs> their resources are more than sufficient to ensure that we can expand into the next deck uh, safely. Uh, so we, we need to bring them into the alliance we have forged between three different decks worth of occupants. Yeah, and so uh, this, yeah, this I, is a political thing as well. So, you know, they didn't have as many cryptic alliances in this one, but you can see the precursors of them. And then there's the engineering uh, rats. Yeah, those guys. Oh, boy. The guys who run the engineering, they keep it to themselves. <laughs> they don't let anybody inherit their technology. They don't know what they're doing. And so, yeah, let's talk about that. The yeah. roots of Metamorphosis Alpha. Jim Ward himself said that he was... And remember, uh, for those of you who look at the dystopia of Warhammer 40K, uh, this is one of the first glimmerings of that, well before the publication of Warhammer's 40K's uh, verse. You know, the... Gamers, even gamers across the water, were familiar with TSR products, including this. And this is one of those glorious early examples of like dystopian extreme future sci-fi. Uh, even if it had a fantastic bent instead of a strict hard science bent, it still had that glorious dystopia so far into a distant future that it cannot be adequately calculated like at a place where dates almost don't matter. Uh, yeah. you got to believe that the guys at Warhammer 40K... Uh, or game or, Games Workshop. Yeah. At the game work Games Workshop crew, pr 
it's a near certainty they noticed this too. Sure. So again, but Metamorphosis Alpha. This is I why think we're that thinking goes into it. an actually earlier book, but I'll get into that. But getting into the one that he says that inspired him for this was not a novel called Nonstop, and it's by Brian Aldiss, and it was initially published in the U.S. In, in 1959, but it appeared in Great Britain in 1951, and then it was renamed uh, Starship when the 1959 appearance over here. So what it is, is uh, just basically, you can look it up on Wikipedia, but I'm going to uh, quote real quick here, that the protagonist it lives in a culturally primitive tribe where life is short, brutish, and not very long. And uh, the corridors that they go through are overrun with vegetation, and his wife is kidnapped, and she is a, uh, the tribal priest, encourages him to go into a furtive expedition into the unexplored corridors, and... Uh, he's captured by humanoid giants of legend, and he finds out that the giants aren't really big. They're just, when they say giants, they're larger than life. They are the remnants of the crew, and they remember all the old technology. Or most of it enough. Yeah, what you're looking at is not so much giants per se, but people who are fit, healthy, and fed. <laughs> and apparently he finds out that they are the most of the as they were going to colonize a planet in a far-off star system, the uh, ships and inhabitants suffered from a pandemic uh, by the inclusion of an uh, alien amino acid found on an asteroid, which is the protozoa uh, meta-scientific theory that's going around right now, which we're finding proof of more and more. But this was a big thing back in the day, the, the pan, uh, panspermia. panspermia. The notion that uh, you know microorganisms spread by asteroid uh, may very well have you know, building the building blocks of life on various worlds and the most obvious uh, being, you know, worlds that had the correct conditions, the, the mixture of water and atmosphere and things like that, uh, life could happen. Uh, so, which also, you know, clearly begs the, the question, you know, how often has it happened before and in how many other places? So Brian Aldous picked this up and he yeah. ran with it and so created this pandemic. And of course, now there's the outsiders, which are once mutants or mutated humans are shorter dwarves in all but name uh, also inhabit parts of the ship. And of course, it goes off and they find that the control center is completely destroyed and they have to find an alternate means. But he works with these two factions to unify them to get to the novel's conclusion, which I'll leave to you. However, it is a fascinating start that this is the generational uh, starship start, but actually Robert Heinlein would beat this uh, by about two decades. He wrote that in 1941. Robert Heinlein, one of our favorite authors, the Dean, yeah, uh, wrote a novel in 1941 called Orphans of the Sky. Now, this is where you probably see a deeper inclusion of Gamma World is he's in a giant syndical spaceship called the Vanguard, and it's destined for Far Centaurus. And, of course, it's run by machines, computers, and all that. And there is a mutiny that kills the officers. So the remaining officers put the mutineers, or muties, in the lower decks, and they have mutated. So they really are muties. Yeah, mutant mutineers. Wow. And Mutiny, so... Uh, you're introduced to your uh, protagonist, Hugh Hoyland, who is selected as an apprentice by a scientist, because there's only two casts. There is officers and scientists. And he finds out that scientists are ritualistically performing the task to maintain the ship without understanding any of the ignorant, or they're completely ignorant of the true function of the ship. 
So such as putting trash into an energy converter to generate power is seen as a holy ritual of cleansing. <laughs> so, but he goes on a hunt by the officers to hunt for muties and Q ends up getting captured and he avoids getting eaten by a microencephalic dwarf named Bobo and becomes the slave of Joe Jim Gregory, a two-headed telepathic leader. <laughs> yeah, Zephod Beeblebrox, yeah. anybody? Yeah, uh. and this is 1941. <laughs> But Hugh and Joe, or Joe Jim, uh, reach an understanding, and uh, he spares them. And they find out that the ship is headed to a doomed expedition, uh, expedition, and nobody's realizing it. And the muties have, and that's what caused the mutiny. Oh, the hell, we're heading are... to a dead planet. Turn around, find someplace else. Yeah, and well, a, a star about to go supernova. And anyway. Um, one of the things is because they don't allow energy weapons aboard or any of the whiz-bang, uh, gee golly, gee, uh, ray, ray blasters. He didn't want to do this. Everybody fights with knives. That's what the officers had, you know, officers, ceremonial daggers and stuff like the that. The idea being that the fragility of the ship, uh, you know, the integrity of the hull was so important that, you know, there will, there will be none of this firing off energy weapons and concussive blasts all about the place willy-nilly. Nope. If you got a problem, you're going to have to duke it out the old-fashioned way. And so one of Joe Jim's favorite books is The Three Musketeers, and they make swords. And then they go after the officers and scientists armed only with daggers. And I find that a fascinating one. But anyway, the book goes through its typical Robert Hainland ending. So you'll uh, be I enjoyed that one. I reread it, and I was like, holy cow, this is, man, what punchy pack in such a short well, and this is 1941. This is not the dean of science fiction as we knew him many years later. But uh, this, like, it gives you a window into just how creative and how fun uh, his pulp sensibilities were, even circa, you know, like pre-service in World War II. So, yeah, I, this this is yeah. He, he is published in two parts. He did the first part in 41, and then later he revisited it later in 1951. And then they uh, put the sequel together in one called Orphans of the Sky, which is what probably what most people are familiar with. I mean, the, the one I found was Orphans of the Sky, and it was a paperback uh, uh, from the Gutenberg <laughs> days. Thank you. It's now public domain. Really? Yeah. I know. Isn't that great? But yeah, 130 freaking pages. Excuse me. <clears throat> I'm in the Marine mode today. Um <laughs> Such a short volume, but such punch. And I'll get you a window to lick. Yeah. <laughs> Crayons, please. <laughs> I prefer the purple ones. They taste better. <laughs> but just so much uh, good stuff that was spotted in that. And I just wanted to touch on that. If that's the antecedents that this comes from, I'm really pleased that looking back in this, I was able to discover Brian Aldis's and Robert Heinlein's novels. So if you get a chance to look them up, if you're inspired for this, or if it doesn't want to make you run a mutant uh, or a metamorphosis off a campaign, I don't know what will. But there's also <laughs> another little one, and I'm just going to be brief on this. Uh, it involves um, Harlan Ellison. Uh, he was hired in the 70s to do a, a TV show uh, <clears throat> and he uh, called The Star Lost. And it was basically the same thing. There's kind of like this Amish community, and they have kind of these cycles and rituals. They can't leave the community. Those who uh, do are never welcomed back. But he ends up leaving anyway. He finds a person who has a key that lets him in a doorway. And it was supposed to be like they could go to a Wild West area or to a remote jungle area or something like that as they go through each of the decks to find the command deck. But Harlan Ellison got so 
uh, miffed at it that as they kept cutting the budget and cutting back to special effects in the areas that he ended up uh, invoking a clause in his contract that allows him to put an alias rather than his own name into the credits, which was he put in this one, Cord Wainer Bird. Yeah, they understandably at the time, they did not give the creatives who wrote for them uh, creative control. That was just not a thing that was often done. Uh, it, it simply wasn't the custom of the time. And so in the absence of that, uh, it was not unusual to have people have a clause that permitted them to withdraw their regular known name from the project. Uh, and that was only the insiders would know that that was a warning shot across the starboard bow about major creative differences between the original material and the final product. And let's remember, although in recent years, the sheer enormity of stations and outlets and creative groups uh, buying intellectual property and then converting it to a viewable product is so large that you're, you're seeing these wonderful windows of quality where creative control by the original author is still in play. We see that as normal now. That was not normal then. And I totally feel for Mr. Ellison because I, I know the guy could be cantankerous even at the best of times. Oh, yeah, he was but, a yeah, prickly pair. And, and people forget that these were guys who they wrote to make a living. You know, it's what right. they loved doing. But the point was like, I want to make a living doing the thing that I love. Uh, so they would do these projects and they would frequently find themselves uh, like, I have to sell this because, you know, I mean, that that's what I made it for. I made it to sell it. And they're not selling out, okay? That the, the point was to develop a thing that somebody would want to purchase. And then, and then the executives of. keep shortchanging them and pulling them back. And then yeah. he was to the point like, why did you even hire me? Yeah, well, You guys are just going to big put everything I uh, throw out here. Then why even? Like, uh, am I just here to rubber stamp? You yeah, know? why even hire me? I mean, you know, I could have done something else with my time. But uh, Obviously, you've hired somebody else who is preempting everything that I say why are you, why am I in the room? Well, I mean, if, if I can't say no to anything, like, ah, uh, that was not the direction I really wanted to go with this. I mean, can't we? Yeah, they wanted to kind of have, a, it kind of sounds interesting that each deck would be have a different theme and that each one would have a uh, dilemma to be solved so he could convince <laughs> them to help him get to the command deck. Yeah, and you can pretty clearly. And see where the value of television production, about, you know, that you would be using reusing old lots that had some potential in them. Yeah, there's a wonderful thoughtfulness there. Like a little side effect of that is, you know, like unlike uh, some of the set work they had to do for other early science fiction shows, in theory, this would have given them, you know, reusable material. Uh, they're like, yeah, we can use the same set and just make minor alterations. Or so instead of it having uh, space Romans in Star Trek, you could actually have a place that had reverted to a Roman-like rulership, and you could see that come out in the development of the series. Yeah, anyway, so smart writing on Ellison's part. I think it was, you know, like a developable product, but, yeah, they boned him on it. And Yeah, they just said, we can we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. And he's like, fine. Okay, coordinator Bird wrote this, and I'm out. Yeah, <laughs> mic drop. Uh, that having been said, it's pretty easy to see where the people who did the creative work on Metamorphosis Alpha 
probably had some yeah. more than passing familiarity with both Harlan Ellison's work on that show. Uh, and, and of course, it was a Mr. Canadian Hayden. production, which meant the Canadian science fiction really sucks. Sorry, uh, my Maple Leaf <laughs> friends. Zap Rodhauser knows your pain. Okay, that's all we have to say. Zap Rodhauser, he knows your pain. Yeah, well, it's time. It's about time for a beer. Yeah, on the sun. I wonder if they have sun or beer in the sun. Poor Zap Rodhauser. Uh, anyway, yeah, deep so, thoughts and no one to answer them. Yeah. No. So, yeah, Metamorphosis Alpha has a lot of stuff. And other people were co-divergent and co-discovering this concept at the same time. I now want to develop a, a Canadian uh, space show. Oh, jeez. It's a space hosers, eh? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Canadian space. <laughs> yeah. All right, I'm just picking on you. I lo we love our Canadian. Right. It, but you've tried so hard. And it's, it just hurts to see that time and time again, Production values are always the lowest in Canada. The only thing worse is Turkish productions of Superman. Turkish <laughs> Superman. It's a thing. Go look it up. Oh, yeah. All right. Or is Turkish Batman. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's terrible. Turkish Batman. All right. So off as brand. we're getting it's, off of here, it, we start to... The Wish.com Batman. <laughs> we're starting to feel a little drowsy and... Your eyes begin to close, <gasps> and you are forced once again into the gaze of the arcane eye. And what are we forced to gaze upon Blink. now? Well, free OSR games. Yeah, Tenkar's Tavern has done an update, and Dead Links have been pruned, and Tenkar's Tavern, if you're familiar with them. Uh, yeah, it can be cantankerous at times. I'm kind of ambivalent about some of his views, but hey, you know what? He does good work occasionally, and so yeah, I want to say a thing about Denkar, which uh, like whether you agree with him on certain things or not, the important thing is that the guy is one of the great product reviewers out there, one of the hidden jewels of you know uh, quick, thoughtful, direct uh, product yeah, examination. No like there's no fluff, there's no frills. You want to know about an RPG that is just coming out or a, an expansion for a product? Tenkar, I, that guy does his homework and he sits down and he nails it every single time. So, hey, Tenkar, still love you. Yeah, so uh, he put up a links and there's 50 free RPGs on here, old school RPGs from Sword and Wizardry Light, uh, the White Box and Core sets, Labyrinth Lord, Osric, Hackmaster Basic, Basic Fantasy, The Blue Home, Prentice Rules, Delving Deeper, for uh, Golden Glory, which is a second edition, Advanced Dungeon Dragons uh, Retro Clone, uh, to Dark Dungeons, Miss and Magic, Renegade, and of course, the OSE, as well as Fiends and Falchions, which uses just the Fiend Folio as its monster manual. I've always thought about that. First edition Pendragon, uh, White Box, Iron Hack, um, yeah, 50. If you can't find something that appeals to your old school sensibilities on this one or yeah. classic gaming, I don't know what can be done for you. Yeah, uh, we're, we cannot help you with that. Like the original Talos Lantern handbook. Yes. Zweihander. Okay. I know. Uh, these are all really classic games. Swords and six-siders. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sabers and witchery. Uh, you, know, you may detect a rampant theme here, <laughs> but... Searchers of the Unknown, Torch and Sword, Flying Swordsman. Yeah, Flying Swordsman. You know, <sighs> if you ever watch those, you know, uh, Saturday afternoon um, Chopsaki movies, yeah, that, that's what that's inspired. And in addition, uh, 
Retro Quest 2, which is a RuneQuest uh, clone, as well as, yeah, uh, Crown, an old-school fantasy role-playing game. Just 50 games for free or for a nominal $2 purchase. You know, you can't beat it. And so... Yeah, this is a lot of bang for a single download, folks. Well, it's you know each it's the links that he has. It's not a single download. It's oh, okay. Like, yeah, it, but it's the links that he put up there, and it, it's very affordable, if not cheap, as in free. No, strong bad. We know you. <laughs> cheap as in free. Yeah, um, you can get them for free or just a small fee. But the fact that it's he's made it available and compiled them and picked them the some up out of the dust of broken links. This was a labor of love to make this stuff available to people. So, yeah, hats off. Big salute. Since we're doing retro gaming uh, this time around, we want to mention to our retro game friends and classic gaming partners out there that, yep, we support you. You know, glad to see that OSE made that their uh, no art version on there, as well as Labyrinth Lord, which I totally respect the ever-living daylights out of. Really good stuff uh, if you want to get your old-school gaming groove on. And, you know, as we refer to it as classic gaming or old school we are a very much still a part of entrenched in that community but we still got our eyes looking forward and we're going to cover that and uh and coming up on our podcast here we've talked about metamorphosis alpha it doesn't always seem to be a whole lot to talk about being trapped on a spaceship full of mutants and mutated plants but i think we managed to touch on the ways in which it allows for expansive campaign play though i mean it the examination from the outside, your first impression might be that it seems so limited. The truth is a lot of thought and a lot of good thought, actually, you know, good ideas went into the making of it uh, to develop a thing that despite what seems like a limitation, there is an awful lot of room for expansive play and focus and it, yeah, and a lot of different things. So if you're looking to play kind of a game world campaign with a little bit of a twist and keep your players thinking, you could have them come from a community of isolated farmers or clansfolk living in these haunted passages and hills that they yeah. believe are their tribal lands and that go beyond <laughs> these is Tibet. Deck 37 has been accidentally terraformed into a green and pleasant land. And then you set foot outside of it into the forbidden zones. And if you ever leave, you can never come back again because you will always, you have been changed by what you have seen. And yeah. they can't allow you. Yeah. You can never go home again, which <laughs> haunting yeah, thematically. I, I like it. Yeah, so, yeah, that. So that brings us back to what we were talking about mapping, some of the things about classic gaming we talk about and the craziness of the, being the mapper. Uh, I think that one of the things uh, we were talking about in having uh, an old school experience is the mapper as a, I was looking at the first the very original box set in the sample dungeon they give in there. And they tell you right off the bat, this is not meant for play. This is just an example. And there's so many references in that original box set of how to screw with the mapper or frustrate the mapper or drive the mapper nuts. Like, Gary, I had to ask, was the guy doing the mapping owe you money? <laughs> Did he, like, run over your cat? Like, Holy yeah. cow, what do you have it out for the mapper? Why did you get... And that's one thing that I think that uh, when we talk about our old pod, our last most recent podcast, is that uh, I kind of sometimes wonder what, why did they want to screw with the mapper so much? <laughs> well, let's face it. Okay, uh, a DM's job in the old days 
was to challenge the players. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and let, if we go back to the, the most early point in gaming, uh, Gygax himself was quite a hawk on, like, if you made no map, you didn't know where you were. And that just enabled yeah, if you the found DM yourself to going you. down to a lower level and you only carried like a bundle of torches, like six torches, and you say, Oh, we're just going to make a quick work of this. Once we get through, we're going to have to get out. And you only had six torches to work with. And the lights go out. Oh boy, this turns into a whole different game. Yeah. Yeah. It's a return to the surface world to gather up more supplies yeah. and then make another Dell. This Trying time we're up. bringing 50 torches. True stories. That's and that goes back to what we were talking about: tropes and misconceptions. Uh, I'm not insisting upon abject realism in my fantasy game with elves and spells, but I am suggesting that understandable and reasonable expectations on the challenges of accomplishing a goal go beyond merely slapping a monster, and those are fun too. Okay, at least they were to me. Uh, I admit more than once I've been caught short, uh, which is why most of my characters to this day have a piece of chalk on them somewhere. Yeah, but exploring and when you're four levels down in the dungeon, you got no way of any light sources. (laughs) You got to find your way up without it. Even with a map, it can get real bad real quick. So... Yeah, that's all we wanted to talk about, about the maps and our old school. Yeah, we wanted to make sure we touched back on that before we got finished. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, Metamorphosis Alpha, thanks for sticking around. It was a fun topic to talk about. And, again, reading a a short science fiction uh, novel by Robert Hanlon. I don't agree with everything Robert Hanlon ever stood for or thought or said, but I do like most of his uh, writing style, and I definitely agree with uh, some of his conditional tropes about having to work with people that you don't necessarily like the appearance of from the first. I thought that was a recurring theme. Yeah, it is something that uh, he touched on a number of times that, uh, you know, cooperation is fraught with peril. It's awkward. It's unpleasant, but it's also necessary. Yeah. Huh. Fun stuff. Well, that brings us to the end of yet another show. Yeah. And if you like what we're doing here, of course, you can always give us a like on our Facebook page. We, we like likes. And, you know, if you ever think, consider like liking, really liking what we do, you can continue to support our podcast by becoming a monthly supporter. You can look at our Anchor page for that. Just look where any of our downloads are. And, of course, uh, we don't want anybody to make any uh, donations, but uh, we are coming up to giving on our 300th episode. So at 250, we're going to have a giveaway. This is our first hint, and we'll talk more about it next episode. So. Exactly. Over the next couple of episodes, more will be revealed. But uh, we're, we'll be doing a episode 250 giveaway. So right. look forward to it. All right. So until next time, may the, the dice, dice always roll in your favor. favor. We're, We're out. See ya.